From WUSC-FM and HD1 Columbia, I'm Ward Jollis. And I'm Erin Slowey. This is Localized from WUSC News. As USC finished its first full week of classes, we're beginning to see a surge in cases of COVID-19. This comes after the university's new saliva tests have been made available to students. Tonight, we're joined by Dr. Philip Buckholtz, who developed the test. He's here to tell us about the process behind creating it and how it's being implemented. Also, we'll hear from USC's Vice President of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, Julian Williams. Tensions were high this week after protesters brandishing racist, sexist and homophobic messages demonstrated on Davis Field. Coming up, how the university is responding and what can be done to ensure free expression without giving a platform to hate speech, this time on Localize. The news is first. Live from WUSC News, I'm Summer Rogers. According to the University of South Carolina COVID-19 dashboard, USC currently has 557 total active coronavirus cases. The student positivity rate is now at 12.7%. 1.1% of USC students have now tested positive for the disease. Also, within the last hour, university spokesperson Jeff Stensland announced that another house in Greek Village has been placed in quarantine, following several of its members testing positive for coronavirus. This is the sixth house in Greek Village to do so. Bates House currently serves as the temporary home for students to safely quarantine who have tested positive for the virus. Although cases have risen in the first full week back to campus, there is still 64.9% available capacity on campus for isolation. With face-to-face classes up in the air, as COVID cases continue to rise, the university released its plans for the upcoming football season, giving students and fans a better idea of what the first Saturday in Williams-Brice will look like. WUSC's Kendall Smith has more. On Thursday, USC released its game day guidelines for fans attending football games this fall at Williams-Brice Stadium. In 2020, face coverings will be required at games, tailgating tents are prohibited, grilling out is discouraged, and there will be contactless payment for concessions. Social distancing will take place in the stadium, hand sanitizing stations will be available, and 15,000 of the 20,000 seats available will be distributed to season ticket holders. This season, the marching band will not conduct any performances on the field and there will be no Gamecock walk. More details on game day guidelines can be located on GamecocksOnline.com. The Gamecocks will begin their season at home on September 26th against Tennessee. That was Kendall Smith reporting. This morning, the Black Lives Matter South Carolina and National Action Network groups gathered to march in Columbia. South Carolina was not the only place with people coming out to march, as many took to the streets in Washington as well. WUSC's Sarah Hudock-Jeffrey reports. Thousands gathered at the Capitol to protest against the systematic racism in the United States that has been at the root of the police violence against Black people this year. The event is called the Get Your Knee Off Our Next Commitment March on Washington and marks the 57th anniversary of the Martin Luther King Jr. March on Washington, where he delivered the I Have a Dream speech. The organizers, marchers, and speakers, including Martin Luther King III, spoke out against these injustices and encouraged voting in the November election. Money expressed sorrow in response to the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, as well as the shooting of Jacob Blake last weekend, which left him paralyzed. Organizer Reverend Al Sharpton said, quote, 
We come today, black and white in all races and religions and sexual orientations, to say this dream is still alive. You might have killed the dreamer, but you can't kill the dream because truth crushed to earth shall rise again. Get your knee off our neck. Enough is enough. Unquote. Sarah Hudock Jeffrey, WSC News. Hurricane Laura made its way through Arkansas earlier today and, while lower to a tropical depression, is still wreaking havoc along its path. Laura is expected to drop up to six inches of rain in Arkansas with winds of up to 35 miles per hour today. Towards its northern border, parts of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Missouri may get up to five inches of rain. These states, as well as Alabama and Kentucky, are at risk for tornadoes tonight. The storm is still moving towards the coast, bringing with it the potential for heavy rain and possible tornadoes as well. The Dow Jones Industrial Average rose 161 points today, the Nasdaq rose 70 points, and the S&P 500 rose 23 points. It's currently 90 degrees outside with a low of 76 tonight. Tomorrow, the high is 87 degrees with a low of 73. I'm Summer Rogers, and you're listening to WUSC News. It's 6.05 breathing becomes a real struggle. COPD stands for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, but you may have heard of it as chronic bronchitis or emphysema. Over time, it makes it harder and harder to breathe until you feel like you're breathing through a straw. COPD is the fourth leading cause of death in the U.S. It kills one person every four minutes, and it took my grandmother. An estimated 24 million Americans are affected, but as many as half of them don't even know it. It's a race against time to spread the word about this serious disease. If you're over 35 and have ever smoked, you could be at risk. The good news is, there are steps you can take to improve your symptoms. I'm Danica Patrick, and I drive for COPD. Take action today to breathe better tomorrow. Join the movement at driveforcopd.com, take our screening questionnaire today, and talk to your doctor. Listening to Localize from WSC News, I'm Erin Slowey. Today ends the first full week of classes for USC, and in a rise of COVID 19 cases, is already in effect on campus. A total of six Greek houses have been placed under quarantine, with four under interim suspension for hosting large parties. Students are wondering if bigger changes are ahead after officials announced today that there are currently 557 active COVID cases on campus. This comes after the debut of the university's new COVID tests that require only a sample of saliva and a much shorter wait time for the test results. Here to discuss the new testing method and what it means for tracking campus cases moving forward is its creator, Dr. Philip Buckholtz. Dr. Philip Buckholtz, thanks for joining me. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, no problem. So tell me a little bit about the creation of the saliva test. Well, it it sort of happened uh, serendipitously. Uh, back in the very beginning of the pandemic, um, we, um, I run a cancer research lab, so we are very good at doing the molecular biology routine of detecting nucleic acids in complex mixtures, but we normally do this to, con- to detect cancer in normal specimens and things like that. And uh, we knew this was going to be a big deal and people were going to need to be able to detect this, this viral infection. And so when the university shut down, <clears throat> sent everyone home. I and a few other scientists uh, stayed up here in the empty building over in Coker and Jones and worked to develop uh, the ability to test 
for the virus, we initially um, made just the standard tests that everyone else used uh, so that we could monitor the healthcare workers at Prisma and other first responders around. But then <clears throat> we started running out of reagents because like I tried to buy some of the reagents to do the test and was told by the sales rep that the country of Thailand just bought 6 million units and there's no more for us. And this was happening for all the various components of this. There were supply line compression everywhere. And so we just decided to invent a cheaper alternative that didn't require swabs and didn't require the media. And we found ways around <clears throat> the way everybody else was doing it. Um, just so that we could actually get work done and test people. And it turned out to be pretty useful. Yeah, so I know you mentioned that you started planning this in the spring. When did you realize that it was going to work and it was something that was going to be implemented on campus? Well, I knew it was working back in probably March. Um, I didn't know that it was going to be a campus-wide screening effort. Uh, back then, I thought it was just going to be a community surveillance tool. We did a lot of testing at Prisma. Uh, we did a lot of testing out in Pickens County uh, because of a, a state representative named Neil Collins, who who I just met on Twitter, you know, who do, who wanted to take care of his constituents, and it, we just were were trying to do good in various uh, groups of people that we knew about, um, different businesses and churches and you know various uh, social organizations. And as it began to be obvious that there was going to be a huge need for testing on campus, I and several other uh, academics around the country at the same time, again, discussing this on Twitter of all places, uh, realized we need to implement this so that we can test all of our students and try to keep the, um, the infection rates down to try to keep the schools open. And this became a serious issue for the social mental health of our students, for the financial health of the organization, for the financial health of the community, you know, it, it suddenly blew up into a big deal. And <clears throat> thankfully, uh, our university president has quite a vision and, and to, to back this. And he supported this from the very beginning and said, I will spare no uh, effort to help this come to pass so that we can take care of the students and also take care of the surrounding community. So now, it has mushroomed into uh, an effort with literally hundreds of people across the university, all working all through the summer to stand this up, <clears throat> to make it available for the students, to protect the students, but also to protect the larger community of Columbia from the students that you know will we'll, uh, we'll be carrying it in and around the community. So it's been quite a team effort that grew gradually, I guess, over time. Mm -hmm. So over the past couple of days, the amount of people that are getting the saliva test has increased rapidly. There's huge lines outside. What was your initial reaction when you saw that? Well, on day one, I thought, hmm, this is, uh, there's, we have more empty chairs than, than I thought we were going to have. And, uh, but then by day five, I and the people in the lab were like, oh man, how are we going to keep up with this? It's one thing to make, you know, to make a pizza that your neighbors all like, but it's another thing to make a pizza that, you know, 5 million people around the country want and you got to produce them. So <laughs> we're glad that the demand has gone up tremendously because it means that we're going to be able to test everyone and hopefully stamp out all these brush fires all over campus. 
but it's also a bit daunting whenever we see the large number of samples that are coming into the lab. Um, uh, the, the, the volunteer army of uh, lab workers are here seven days a week, 18 hours a day, just working like crazy to process all of these. And it's quite a challenge. Um, we're glad to do it, but it is not easy. So how much do you think that um, the university can test with the saliva test that you guys are putting out each week? <clears throat> you mean how many people can we test? Yes. Well, um, so one of my, my lab uh, <laughs> assistants here in the office, which is also my middle daughter, who is a student here, says that we did 1120 today. Um, and I think that we'll be able to do 1200 a day um, routinely. And pretty soon that will jump to 2400 a day because of some molecular biology tricks that we're doing to increase our throughput. And then whenever some, some equipment that we have on order comes in, that's going to double yet again, um, maybe to 4,800 a day. And that's amazing throughput. That's like more than, than most state agencies can do because we're doing it a fast and cheap way. What we're doing is way, way simpler than the standard method. So I think that um, my goal is to be able to test all 30,000 Gamecocks um, <clears throat> repeatedly throughout the semester. Uh, in order to, to, to tamp the virus down, everybody needs to be tested, uh, you know, once a week or once every 10 days, uh, repeated testing and then quarantining the positive so that we can drive the, the R0 down below one. So that's our goal. And uh, we're going to work as hard as we can to get it to that. For the students that have not taken the saliva test, what is something that they should expect um, waiting in line and doing the test itself? It's, uh, well, you just go to, to the field out by the fountain and <clears throat> get there early, you know, spit early, beat the rush. Uh, it's not complicated. You just go up and, and you get a, get a tube that has a barcode on it and you scan it with your phone and you sit down and you spit for a little while. Um, it usually takes about five minutes or so to produce the five milliliters of saliva. Um, you hand it in and you go about your merry way. And then you'll get a, a text message and a little uh, notification on your phone uh, 12 hours later or so that says, hey, your results are ready. And then you can go look at it and see. And if you're negative, you know, then thumbs up. And if you're positive, then you just go into the penalty box for <laughs> about, you know, 14 days and you're well taken care of while you're there. You know, they kind of, they take, it's, it's really like, you know, kind of a, a hotel experience. They're really taking care of people. And importantly, <clears throat> the people who are positive, when they come out of quarantine, they will be morphed into potential heroes because there's another angle to all of this that I don't think people have really gotten their head wrapped around yet. And that is the notion of convalescent plasma. So Dr. Helmut Albrecht has been leading a team of doctors here at Prisma Health for the last several months, running this trial of convalescent plasma. And they've treated over 800 people. The stuff works. It absolutely works. And now we're, we want to uh, encourage Gamecocks who become positive, who then go to quarantine for 14 days, to then go to the blood connection in the in the Russell House, donate their plasma, and they will become heroes that will save the lives of critically ill people all over the state. So this has has a chance 
to morph from a victim story into a hero story. And I'm very, very hopeful that as many Gamecocks as become infected will participate in this. So then I know you've been working on the saliva test a lot. So what's next for you after this? Is this your main focus right now? I'm actually not a virologist. <laughs> I have know nothing about infectious diseases. I'm a cancer researcher. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, we, uh, we do things about the genetics of cancer and, and the genetics of aging and, and how um, uh, African-American disparities are in, in cancer incidents. What are the reasons behind that? And we, we develop new cancer therapeutics and, and we use genetic techniques to to uncover why cancers are resistant or sensitive to chemotherapy. And that's what we'll do, right? We'll keep doing that. This is, um, you know, these are the orcs that we found in front of us that we had to shoot, right? This is, we, we didn't plan on this. We didn't want to be born in the time of this, this great war, but here we are. So we just have to do what we have to do. And when it's all over with though, we'll go back to doing what we did before, which is cancer research and teaching students biochemistry and molecular biology and genetics. Yeah. That's great. Well, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much for joining me. Joining me, that was Dr. Philip Buckholtz. We'll be right back. Thank you. I'll pick you up after school. Okay, I got it. It's easy to take a day for granted. You and your family are connected by routine and you stick to it. But what if a disaster strikes without warning? What if life as you know it has completely turned on its head? What if your day's routine is disrupted and you can't reach your family? Have you planned for that? Before a disaster turns your family's world upside down, it's up to you to be ready. Get a kit. Make a plan. Be informed. Today. Learn how at www.ready.gov. Ready.gov. This message brought to you by the Federal Emergency Management Agency and the Ad Council. You're listening to Localize from WUSC News. I'm Orjalis. USC's campus was the site of protest yet again after a group of demonstrators carrying signs bearing racist, sexist, and homophobic messaging arrived on Davis Field on Wednesday. Students were quick to mobilize, forming a counter-protest, and leaders like student body president Izzy Rushton were also there, and they were attempting to disperse the crowds, as well as another guy, trombone guy, a Carolina band member who gained attention for playing his instrument over the words of another anti-Black Lives Matter protester last week. The event has raised a lot of questions recently, though. Students are asking why these demonstrators were allowed to use campus space, uh, many saying that they felt threatened, while others were harassed by the demonstrators. Joining me now to discuss the university policies that allowed them to protest there and plans moving forward is Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Julian Williams. Julian, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Ford. Thanks for having me. So, Julian, 
twice in the past week, the university has been dealing with these anti-Black Lives Matter protesters. Um, so just really quick, tell me, why are these people allowed to protest here in the first place? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting uh, question. And I think uh, I, I applaud students for their response. And I also think it's a, it's a great question. I, with the university being a, a public university and a public campus, um, the, the ability to limit access to the campus is extremely limited. And first I'll start off by saying um, absolutely abhorrent what these folks are, are spewing and, and, and bringing to our campus. And I applaud our students for making the choice either to, to fight their speech with their own speech or ignore them and, and take the steam out of what they were trying to say by walking past. Um, but uh, the ability for the university to bar these folks from campus is is almost none. Uh, I think about 20 years ago when I was an undergrad at the University of Michigan, there was a version of these folks on our campus. I think about the campus that I worked at at George Mason University before I got to USC and there was the same, it seemed like the same people eventually, but um, there, you know, I totally respect the, the, the feelings of our students, yeah. uh, the fact that they, uh, you know, are, are, don't want to be confronted with this, who would, um, but the ability for the university to stop the, or bar those folks from campus are uh, extremely, extremely yeah. limited. Yeah, well, well, many students are saying that USC is not doing enough. Um, and they're saying that uh, USC should be stopping these people who are coming here and uh, they're preaching this hate speech. Um, and they're saying they're not wearing masks. So they, you know, people are saying they technically pose an immediate threat to students. Um, I mean, what do you think about the university's response? Are, is the university doing enough? Uh, what would you do? Yeah, it's a great, a great question. And I, well, I can't speak for all aspects of, uh, of the, the decision making process, because obviously, uh, some of that is controlled by our student affairs. But we this is something we have talked about as a leadership team uh, over the last week. And, and I think that we do, I mean, the, the, the limitations on the First Amendment are pretty clear, especially for a public university campus. And we have to, uh, we wouldn't be able to bar these folks from the, the gates of our campus. But I think what we can do, and maybe can do better, uh, is to uh, uh, try to figure out a way to, to notify students that there would be these sorts of protests on campus and maybe do that in a more efficient way. Um, try to fit, and I think what we also can do is then think about how we're providing support to students and affected groups uh, in the midst of, of these folks coming to our campus. And I, and I would imagine that this won't be the last visit to campus uh, that we have. And so it's how we're for providing support, but also how we're, we're um, informing and educating students around um, even their own activism. So how uh, we can, we have the, uh, obviously the ability as community members to fight speech with speech. Uh, and you saw some of the counter protesters. So, um, you know, this is something that we've talked about as a leadership team. I know the president is looking forward to responding to. Uh, and I think they're, 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 these are lessons for us as a university on how we can uh, continue to be yeah. better. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, so Julian, I just wanted to, um, real quick, I, I saw on your Twitter recently, uh, you spoke out about the recent protest. Um, on campus, and you said, quote, you know, there's little the university can do to prevent these types of people from coming onto campus. So we've got two choices, fight their speech with our own speech or ignore them. So going off of that tweet, um, Julian, how do you think students should be reacting to these protests? I know you've said this, there's this clear dichotomy, uh, speak out or keep going, but in your opinion, what is the correct way to go about doing this? 
Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a great a great question. Where I don't think there's a wrong answer there. Um, you know, I think that we I, I would encourage students to protect their own emotional and psychological safety. Um, so if you're on your way to class and it's been a long day and and you just don't have the energy, like it's okay to walk past these people. Like it's okay. And in fact, um, you know, I think a lot of times these folks are looking for the the types of reaction. Not to not to criticize students for counter protesting, because obviously we want them to also know that this that, that what they're bringing to our campus is welcomed here. So I think it's okay to make those choices. Um, you know, for the for the sake of your own psychological and mental uh, health and safety. Um, you know, and then some students are going to choose to to stand up and be vocal, and that's awesome too. Um, you know, I think I don't think there's a wrong answer there. Uh, I think that it's okay to. For a student to choose one or the other depending on how they're doing and I always encourage students to to think about their own well-being their own uh, psychological and mental health um, utilize the campus resources that are available to them and figure out sort of how they're feeling uh, that day um, but I do imagine that um, this probably won't be the last group or, yeah. or, or demonstrators that come to our campus. Yeah, yeah so Julian just kind of switching gears here a little bit um, you are USC's first ever um, Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Uh, I just, what what does that mean to you, and what are you making out of this role? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's extremely humbling. I spent most of the day on uh, on a podcast with with Hannah White, our Student Body Vice President, uh, raising money for the Giving Black. Uh, uh, we were listening to that uh, earlier. We were just listening. yeah, it was <laughs> really fun. But you know, it's it's not lost on me the uh, the, the responsibility uh, of the role, and I'm thankful for it. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to work with our President uh, Bob Caslin and Provost Bill Tate and the rest of the leadership team. Um, but I really look forward to working on behalf of students students working on behalf of our faculty and staff, bringing us as a university closer in line with who we say we are. Um, and, and, and I think it's that gap between who we say we are and we strive to be versus what this campus feels like and has felt like for students, faculty and staff for far too long. And we've got to close that gap. And you know, I look forward to engaging in work that's going to help close that gap. Um, it's been an awesome two months. We've got some amazing students, uh, faculty and alumni, uh, and really just excited about the role and getting to work. Yeah. Yeah. So Julian, one last question before I let you go. Uh, this has been a very difficult year for many of our students um, for a variety of reasons between coronavirus complications and the fight against racism and police brutality. I mean, what message do you want to send to students who have been fighting discrimination or have felt marginalized over the past summer or faced, you know, some other difficulties over this year? Absolutely. Uh, you know, this is, this is, uh, I, 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 and I, the way I like to class, I think we're in a movement and not a moment. Um, but I think for students, there's, there's a tremendous possibility for an opportunity for change. So I would encourage them to take ownership. Uh, there's going to be times when they may be, may be made to feel as though uh, this campus doesn't belong to them or they're not a fully functioning or they don't hold the same rights to the university as others. And I would encourage them to, to sort of disabuse themselves of that and take ownership of their experience. Uh, continue to, to advocate for change on things that are important to them. 
and, and work with us to help hold us accountable as a senior leadership team to be able to do that. And then lastly, it is to take care of their, themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, utilize the resources that are available from a mental health perspective. We got an awesome counseling center um, in this moment, especially with COVID, uh, wear your mask and take care of yourself yeah. from there and take care of others. So that's that's the advice that I would offer in this, in this difficult right. yeah. time. Thank you so much, uh, Julian. You've been great today. Uh, that was Julian Williams. He is USC's Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Julian, thank you. Thanks, Ward. That's all for this episode of Localize. Make sure to join us every Friday at 6 p.m. for a local take on this week's biggest stories. Localize is a production by WSC News and is produced by Mary Brian Charles and Ward Jollis. The outreach coordinator for Localize is Rita Naidu, and the music for the show is called Freedom by Atch. You can find other new shows in WSC News Podcast at garnetmediagroup.org. Live from WSC News in Columbia, I'm Ward Jollis. And I'm Erin Slowey. This is Localize.